Hello everybody, it's your Juno. Uh, this is your second bonus episode of today, uh, so enjoy. Uh, last bonus episode, bonus episode one, uh, I did a little bit of an election analysis of um, the Hermitcraft server mayoral race in Minecraft, uh, because I thought it'd be kind of funny. Uh, in this episode, uh, I'm going to read you the first chapter of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Uh, I will not read you the footnotes because the footnotes are long. Uh, maybe if something needs to be explained, I'll stop uh, and explain it. But uh, there's no real point in, in sort of talking for too long about what I'm going to do. Uh, all I'm going to do is read to you chapter one, Bourgeois and Proletarians. The history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. Freeman and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, killed master and journeyman, in a word, oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted and now hidden, now open fight. A fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the struggling classes. In earlier epochs of history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders, a manifold graduation of social rank. In ancient Rome, we have patricians, knights, plebeians, slaves. In the Middle Ages, feudal lords, vassals, guildmasters, journeymen, apprentices, serfs, and in almost all these particular classes, again, other subordinate gradations. The modern bourgeois society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. It has only established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in which, in place of the old ones. Our epoch, the epoch of the bourgeoisie, shows, however, this distinctive feature. It has simplified the class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting into two great hostile camps into two great classes directly facing each other, bourgeoisie and proletariat. From the serfs of the Middle Ages sprang the chartered burghers of the earliest towns. From these burghers, the, er, er, the first elements of the bourgeoisie were developed. The discovery of America, the rounding of the Cape, opened up fresh ground for the rising bourgeoisie. The East Indian and Chinese markets, the colonization of America, trade with the colonies, the increase in the means of exchange, and commodities generally gave to commerce, to navigation, to industry, an impulse never before known, and thereby to the revolutionary element in the tottering feudal society, a rapid development. The feudal system of the industry, under which industrial production was mo monopolized by closed guilds, now no longer sufficed for the growing wants of the new markets. The manufacturing system took its place. Guild masters were pushed to one side by the manufacturing middle class. Division of labor between the different corporate guilds vanished in the face of division of labor in each single workshop. Meanwhile, the markets kept on growing. Demand went on rising. Manufacturing no longer was able to keep up with its growth. Then, steam and machinery revolutionized industrial production. The place of manufacture was taken by the giant modern industry. The place of the industrial middle class by industrial millionaires the leaders of the whole industrial armies, the modern bourgeois. Modern industry has established the world market for which the discovery of America paved the way. This market has given an immense development to commerce, to navigation, to communication by land. 
this development has in its turn reacted on the extension of industry and in proportion as industry, commerce, navigation, railways extended. In the same proportion, the bourgeoisie developed, increased its capital, and pushed into the background every class handed down from the Middle Ages. We see, therefore, how the modern bourgeoisie is itself the product of a long course of development, of a series of revolutions in the modes of production and of exchange. Each step in the development of the bourgeoisie was accompanied by a corresponding political advance of that class. An oppressed class under the sway of feudal nobility, an armed and self-governing association in the medieval commune, here an independent urban republic as in Italy and Germany, there taxable third estate of the monarchy as in France, afterward in the period of manufacturing proper serving either the semi-feudal or the absolute monarchy as a counterpoise against the nobility and, in fact, a cornerstone of the great monarchies in general. The bourgeoisie has, at last, since the establishment of modern industry out of the world market, conquered for itself in the modern representative state, exclusive political sway. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie, historically, has played a most revolutionary part. The bourgeoisie, wherever it has got the upper hand, has put an end to all feudal, patriarchal, idyllic relations. It has pitilessly torn asunder the motley feudal ties that bound man to his natural superiors. It has left remaining no other bond between man uh, and man than naked self-interest and callous cash payment. It has drowned the most heavenly ecstasies of religious fervor, of chivalrous enthusiasm, of Philistine sentimentalism in the icy water of egotistical calculation. It has resolved personal worth into exchange value, and in place of the numberless indefeasible charged freedoms, has set up that single inconscionable freedom, free trade. In one word, for exploitation, veiled by religious and political illusions, it has substituted naked, shameless, brutal, direct exploitation. The bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, the priest, the poet, the man of science, into its paid wage laborers. The bourgeoisie has torn away from the family its sentimental veil and has reduced the family relation to a mere money relation. The bourgeoisie has disclosed how it came to pass that the brutal display of vigor in the Middle Ages, which reactionaries so much admire, found its fitting complement in the laziest indolence. It has been the first to show what man's activity can bring about. It has accomplished wonders far surpassing Egyptian pyramids, Roman aqueducts, and Gothic cathedrals. It has conducted expeditions that put to shame all former exoduses of nations and crusades. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production, and thereby the relations of production, and with them the whole relations of society. Conservation of the old modes of production in unaltered form was, on the contrary, the first condition of existence for all earlier industrial classes. Constant revolutionizing of production, uninterrupted disturbance of all social conditions, everlasting uncertainty and agitation distinguished the bourgeois epoch from all earlier ones. All fixed, fast-frozen relations, with their train of ancient and venerable prejudices and opinions, are swept away. All new-form ones become antiquated before they can ossify. All that is solid melts into air, all that is wholly profaned, and man is at last compelled to face his real conditions of life and his mutual relations with sober eye. 
The need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the whole surface of the globe. It must nestle everywhere, settle everywhere, and establish connections everywhere. The bourgeoisie has, through its exploitation of the world market, given a cosmopolitan character to production and consumption in every country. To the great chagrin of reactionaries, it has drawn from under the feet of industry the national ground on which it stood. All old established national industries have been destroyed or are daily being destroyed. They are dislodged by new industries, for introduction becomes a life and death question for all civilized nations by industries that no longer work up indigenous raw material, but raw material drawn from remote zones, industries whose products uh, are consumed not only at home but in every quarter of the globe. In place of the old wants satisfied by productions of the country, we find new wants requiring for their satisfactions the products of distant lands and climates. In place of the old local and national seclusion and self-sufficiency, we have intercourse in every direction, universal interdependence of nations, and as in material, so also in intellectual production. The intellectual creations of individual nations become common property. National one-sidedness and narrow-mindedness become more and more impossible, and from the numerous national and local literatures, there emerges a world literature. The bourgeoisie, by the rapid improvement of all instruments of production, by the immensely facilitated means of communication, draws all, even the most backward nations, into civilization. The cheap prices of its commodities are the heavy artillery with which it batters down all Chinese walls, with which it forces the undeveloped nation's intensity, obstinate hatred of foreigners to capitulate. It compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production. It compels them to introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e. to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world in its own image. The bourgeoisie has subjected rural areas to the will of cities. It has created enormous cities, has greatly increased the urban population as compared with the rural, and has thus rescued a considerable part of the population from the idiocy of rural life. Just as it has made the country dependent on the cities, so it has made the barbarian and semi-underdeveloped countries dependent on the civilized ones. Nations of peasants on nations of bourgeois, the east on the west. The bourgeoisie keeps more and more doing away with the scattered state of the population, of the means of production, and of poverty. It is a agglomerated population, centralized means of production, and has concentrated property in a few hands. The necessary consequence of this was political centralization, independent or but loosely connected. Provinces with separate interests, laws, governments, and systems of taxation became lumped together into one nation, with one government, one code of laws, one national class interest, one frontier, and one customs tariff. The bourgeoisie during its rule of scarcely 100 years has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjugation of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor? We see then the means of production and of exchange, on whose foundation the bourgeoisie built itself up, were generated in feudal society. At a certain stage in the development of these means of production and of exchange, the conditions under which feudal society produced and exchanged, the feudal organization of agriculture and manufacturing industry, in one word, the feudal relations of property, became no longer compatible with the already developed productive forces. 
they became so many fetters, they had to be burst asunder, they were burst asunder, and their place step-free competition, accompanied by a social and political constitution adapted to it by the economical and political sway of the bourgeois class. A similar movement is going on before our own eyes. Modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange and of property, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and exchange, is like the sorcerer, who is no longer able to control the powers of the subterranean world, which he has called up by his spells. For many decades now, the history of industry and commerce uh, has been but the history of the revolt of modern productive forces against modern conditions of production, against the property relations that are the conditions for the existence of the bourgeoisie and of its rule. It is enough to mention the commercial crises that, by their periodical return, put on trial, each time more threateningly, the existence of the entire bourgeois society. In these crises, a great part not only of the existing products but also of the previously created productive forces are periodically destroyed. In these crises, there breaks out an epidemic that, in all earlier epochs, would have seen an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself back in a state of momentary barbarism. It appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation, had cut off the supply of every means of subsistence. Industry and commerce seem to be destroyed, but why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of, of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. The productive forces at the disposal of society no longer tend to further de the development of the conditions of bourgeois property. On the contrary, they become too powerful for these conditions by which they are fettered. Too soon as they overcome these fetters, they bring disorder into the whole of bourgeois society, endanger the existence of bourgeois property. The conditions of bourgeois society are too narrow to comprise the wealth created by them. How does the bourgeoisie get over these crises? On the one hand, by enforced destruction of mass productive forces, on the other, by the conquest of new markets, and by the more thorough exploitation of the old ones. That is to say, by paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises, and by diminishing the means whereby crises are prevented. The weapons with which the bourgeoisie fell feudalism to the ground are now turned against the bourgeoisie itself. Not only has the bourgeoisie forged the weapons that bring death to itself, it has also called into existence the men who are to wield those weapons, the modern working class, the proletarians. Well, fellas, that was the first half of bourgeois and proletarians. In the next half, which will be recorded at some point in the future, we will get into the proletarians' half of bourgeoisie and proletarians. So, that's been it. I've been Malcolm. This has been your Juno bonus episode two. I really do hope you've enjoyed. Uh, and we will be recording an, an episode tomorrow about Labour Party in the UK uh, and why Sir Keir Starmer is a bit of a numpty. Uh, so yes, I've been Malcolm. This has been your Juno. Tune in tomorrow. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>